eventually I get to hospital and they give me a lot of drugs um, and I realise that I can't go on pretending anymore. Um, and as soon as I get a bit better, my boyfriend is away on a shoot in Miami, living his dream, um, and I decide I'm going to come back to Australia. So I come back to Australia and for the first time in my life, um, I live by myself. Uh, and that's, you know, no boyfriend, no siblings, no flatmates, just me alone in a house with my own thoughts. And what I came to realise was how much energy I put into second-guessing what everyone else wanted or thought or needed from me. And I spent so much of my life twisting myself into whatever shape they needed me to be. And I never spent any time wondering who I was or what I wanted. And I realised, actually, in the home that I grew up in, that was necessary to keep me out of trouble. I had to keep twisting myself into whatever shape my father needed me to be. And I realised that I had put in a lot of energy my whole life into trying to make sure that nobody ever saw the real me. Because if I wasn't the real me, it didn't hurt so much when my father hit me. And if I wasn't the real me, it didn't matter so much when my mum was drunk and couldn't cook dinner or look after me. That's the voice of Ruth Clare, Melbourne author. She wrote a beautiful memoir, Enemy, a daughter's story of how her father brought the Vietnam War home. And she also was on one of my favourite episodes of the Conversations podcast with Richard Feidler. Has an amazing knack of telling a story. And today we're going to be talking about the TED Talk format of telling a story because Ruth has delivered three of those, one of which has had 100,000 views on YouTube, which has made her a hero for her 11-year-old YouTube-obsessed son. Speakola does have a sponsor. It is DocPlay. I've had a great month watching DocPlay documentaries, the most recent of which was called Salinger About the strange and reclusive life of J.D. Salinger. I knew the book, The Catcher in the Rye, although I must say I actually like the YA book, King Dork, which makes fun of The Catcher in the Rye better than the original. That is a great book. Look that up, King Dork. So I loved the film Salinger. I also loved the Kurt Vonnegut documentary that's on Doc Play. Tried to get the director of that on as a guest to talk about Kurt Vonnegut. He's a close friend of Vonnegut's. He said no. I get a lot of no's on this podcast. If you knew how ambitious the guests I chase are, well, you'd be impressed. But check out DocPlay. You can sign up via the SpeakOla landing page at docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash SpeakOla. You get 45 days free subscription. It is a perfect Christmas subscription gift. Get on it. DocPlay.com. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land.
Bicola with Tony Wilson. Hello, I am Tony Wilson. Welcome to the last episode of the Speakola podcast for 2022. And what a great year it's been. I think there's been 13 episodes ranging from John Doyle rampaging Roy Slavin back in February. We've had Richard Cohen talking Winston Churchill. We've had Laura Lex, the excellent UK comedian. She came on and talked wedding speeches. So many great episodes. I've loved doing the show and thank you for listening to it. There's a new gathering place for Speakola fans and that is news.speakola.com. For years I trucked along with a MailChimp mailing list and I found it clunky and difficult to embed audio and YouTube clips and the like. So I've moved over to Substack and I think it's been a big improvement. For those of you who are among the more than 5,300 who have signed up to the newsletter, you'll have noticed that the posts have been a little bit more regular. And the aim is to continue with that, to analyse a speech, to talk about the stories of speeches, to share little snippets of audio, to give my thoughts about speeches in the Speakola newsletter. And you can either sign up for free and just be part of this speech-loving community, or you can support me and help me keep this thing going with the actual costs of doing Speakola and also the time costs to make it something of a job for me. And I'm really grateful to the more than 40 people that have become paid subscribers on Substack and also to the 50 or so people who are supporters on Patreon. And there've been also donors over the years as well. So thank you if you've been a donor, if you're on Patreon, or if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. That's just $5 a month or $50 a year. News.speakola.com. My last guest for 2022 is Melbourne author Ruth Clare. She's written the book Enemy, a daughter's story of how her father brought the Vietnam War home and has a rare knack of being able to communicate the horror and trauma of her childhood, a childhood in which she was the regular victim of domestic violence perpetrated by her father, a man who struggled with his undiagnosed and untreated post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the Vietnam War. Ruth speaks amazingly about trauma. She's a regular visitor to schools and universities and conferences for health professionals. But she's also delivered three TED Talks. And given the TED Talk phenomena, I thought I'd get her on to talk about TED Talks. In some respects, what I like about Speakola is that it's not very TED Talky. We can put up any shape of speech at any time as it appears in the whole glorious spectrum of humanity. Whereas the TED Talk is, of course, so circumscribed. But at the same time, I love listening to them, and they have changed the speaking world to some extent. My son had a TED Talk assignment only this month in Year 7. So you can sort of see that that branding has just been so successful, and that shape of talk so successful as well. And so Ruth is going to come on and talk about that shape of talk, how she made her three, and in particular, the one that's had 100,000 downloads. It's called The Pain of Hiding Your True Self. Ruth Clare. Speakola. Well, it was fireworks and excitement at Speakola as we crossed 100,000 downloads and... 
Someone I know in my author and friendship circle, she said, well, I've hit 100,000 as well, and she'd hit it on her TED Talk. And I said, I do a podcast about talks. You've got to come on. And she has Ruth Clare. Thanks for joining me. My absolute pleasure, Tony. How did you celebrate the 100,000? Were you sitting there watching it click over? No, but my um, daughter, who loves baking, made me a giant cookie with 100,000 on it, which was very nice. Better Cookies are always the best way to celebrate. That is beautiful. My, fa- I had to do my own parody video of Buddy's 1,000 goals for myself. Um, Ruth, TED Talks, you've done three of them. Tell us about TED Talks. How did you come to them? Why do a TED Talk? I love the TED Talk concept. Ever since I sort of saw my first TED Talk, it's always been a thing that I love learning from people. Like I'm a kind of, you know, obsessive learner. And I like the format of, you know, people telling it in a story. I much prefer to receive my information in an entertaining way for not too long. That's also a story. So that's what the TED Talk is. And is there one that became, you know, one of your core TED Talks, one that you revisited often and is the a foundation TED Talk? I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert's really famous. Brene Brown's really famous. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson, very famous ones. Is there? Have you got a favourite? Um, well, Brené, I love the Brené. Um, like, I love all of her concepts. She's actually been a massive inspiration in terms of being brave enough to be vulnerable. Like, that whole concept has actually totally changed my life. So, she's like an absolute legend to me. And her TED Talk's really good because she's really good at, even though she's, you know, she's had to break through being an academic and sort of offering up her material instead of going, here's 500,000 citations, you know, that kind of boring, dry academic style. Um, And she's become more of a storyteller. And she's a really good example of somebody who gives you a lot of information, but has a comedic and, you know, is able to do lots of different stuff. And can I talk about the vulnerability? Because how I came to you as a writer was that you were writing a memoir and I read an early draft of it and it was it's such a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. It's called Enemy. But this was a book. Um, it's quite different. I mean, it's touched on in the TED Talk that we're going to focus on, but this was a, a book that required a lot of vulnerability. Can you tell us about Enemy? Yeah, so Enemy is a story of um, my childhood. Um, in large part growing up in a home with family violence and addiction. So it's sort of split into two parts. The the childhood narrative is its own um, thread because I didn't want my adult understanding to um, interfere with how I interpreted the situation I was living in at the time. It was really important for me to have two distinctive threads. And then there's an adult thread where as an adult, you know, once I um, became pregnant with my own child, I started to really think what must have happened to dad that he was able to beat his children up (laughs) as regularly and as hard as he did? Like what interfered with his process as a parent? And I knew he'd been to the Vietnam War, but it wasn't something that we'd spoken about in my house. And so I, you know, assumed that that must have had an enormous impact on him. But I wanted to sort of, so, you know, I I spoke to some of his family, just trying to understand, did you grow up in a home with family violence? Because it's not something that anyone talks about. And they said, no, we had strict parents, but that wasn't our experience. And so then I started to interview other veterans because my dad had died um, when he was 52. So I didn't have a chance to ask him what happened. You know, how, how, how did that experience impact you? So I started doing some research and I started speaking to other veterans and some of those um, men were brave enough to share, 
yep, I beat the crap out of my kids too. And you'd sort of, you know, you'd get triggered in some way and then find yourself in the middle of this overwhelming experience and the next thing you know, you're in the middle of hitting your kids and you haven't even put any thought into it. And one of the reasons that I had the impulse to write it was that when my son was two, he started hitting me and it really triggered my rage. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so close to hitting him back. Mm. Um, And it was the first time that I went, oh, my God, the amount of feelings I'm having to control all of the time to not act that way and to not repeat that pattern, that is really hard. Um, And I didn't expect to ever be, you know, I had a grandiose notion of myself as a parent who would sing gaily to her children and they would trundle along and we would have a lovely, you know, it's like way more hardcore than that. So it felt really important and it felt like no one talks about what it's like to be a child growing up in a home with domestic violence. It still isn't spoken about. I still, you know, no one talks about it and it happens really regularly. And so it's something that part of what Brene Brown's work does is talk about shame and shame living in silence and part of the, all of my work is about going, why shouldn't we talk about this stuff? Why should this not be a story that is just part of the narrative so we can become more comfortable, so people can share more, so that they can get the help? And that's the driving force behind all of my work. And when I was reading the book, I was you say people don't talk about this, and I have this sort of, I guess, this abstract idea of family violence, know about it as an issue, have enormous uh, of pity I guess and sympathy for people that have endured it I feel those feelings that you're talking about as a parent where you want to hit I have that kind of understanding but your book I mean it starts with um, these little tic-tac stickers being stuck on the wall and your dad's reaction to you defacing a wall mm. um, I mean that to have that and this is what becomes a big thing when we talk about TED Talks later that when you have detail and when you have a moment in time being captured with the skill of words, you can be actually transported into a different level of understanding. The one I read this morning, I mean, you might even be able to tell us about it, but there was a boat trip that you and your sister went on. Uh, do you remember Do you remember writing that? That's probably yeah. a while ago since you read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But I presume all these <laughs> memories are quite vivid for you. That's right. They, <laughs> they do exist inside my head as well. It wasn't something I just dreamt up. <laughs> Um, so tell us about, like, for example, just to get a picture of what, as you were saying, what, what family violence can look like. Well, I mean, in, in that instance, you know, Dad used to, um, I was, I get really seasick and we were made to go on the boat nearly every single weekend because we didn't grow up in a home with much money. And actually fishing was a really big way that we supplemented actually our food was that we were expected to fish and catch a certain number of fish. And that was, we would have fish probably three times a week, which is delicious. You know, getting up, you have to get up at like five in the morning. You've got to be – so the way that dad would, would do it is like you have to sleep in your clothes. The second dad would walk into your room, like maybe it was even 4.30, or you know, because you've got to get the tides. Um, he'd be like, right, get up. And you basically you base, better spring out of your bed and stand to attention. That is the expectation. So, you know, okay, and you're like standing, staggering in the hall going, oh, my God, I'm so tired. And then you'd drive. I'd always just fall asleep in the car on the way down there. And then you'd, you'd wind up at the boat ramp, you know, with all the other people lining up. And it's beautiful. Like it always, you know, you did get out there at sunrise on an ocean. It was in Rockhampton, you know, so it's warm. It's like none of the cold awfulness of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> and then you'd get on the boat, go out. And, you know, you have these moments where it's lovely and, you know, and then 
he had this thing where anyone who has gone fishing and I now, Alex, my, my son went through a stage of wanting to do fishing and I'm like, oh my God, because that freaking line does get so tangled. I'm like, yep. And now we get a lighter and we burn your rod because I hate this so deeply. <laughs> like I totally, as a parent having to kind of do the untangling, understand how frustrating it is. But dad was like, we would only have hand reels. And it's like, you do not drop the sinker. Like if you drop that sinker, it's a tangle mess in there and it would drive him absolutely nuts. So you're in there, you've got, you know, these hand lines and sometimes you're catching really quite big fish and you're only little. And so you're trying to bring the hand reel in with, but it's really heavy. It's cutting into your, you know, that feeling when it cuts into your hands and you're like, you're a kid going, oh my God. And then he'd come over the top and he'd get, come on, he's over the top of you. And then if you drop the sinker, it would often be you'd on a boat and then this in the instance you're talking about, he hit he was hitting my sister, telling her not to drop the sinker and how stupid. And he, sta- he always started on these lectures. How stupid do you think? It's like, don't hit me in time to your lecture. Like, oh, my God, that used to infuriate me. And you're just in the middle of it going, lecture, don't use me, hit me while you do, you know, I'd be also a just punch, annoyed. At- punctuation. With yeah, exactly, exactly. And so in this particular instance, I was like, trying not to you know because you get it's very rocky try not to throw up and so he said okay then you you know he dropped me off he said okay well what about if I just drop you off on that island over there I'm like okay as long as I have to be in a boat with you mate well come go drop me anywhere I'll, I'll just hunt for life yep so he just dropped me off on an island which I thought this is going to be great and but it was actually kind of scary to be on a creepy island um, by yourself for quite a few hours just going okay I hope they come back Haha, <laughs> maybe then, you know, because I Hansel and Gretel was a really big thing. I was going, is this is this the woodcutter's wife scene? Am I now like like there was no breadcrumbs? I don't know where I'm going. I'm I either live on this island or they come back. So how old were you then? Um I think was it maybe eight or ten? Uh, um, it's amazing. And then and then there's this the other half of, well, another image I always remember from the book is there's a chapter dedicated to your year 12 year or more more than one chapter probably but it was say what happened like how did you live your year 12 year oh well you know after dad left I was 11 when dad left and mum became a chronic alcoholic um ended up with alcoholic dementia she like really put in the hard yards just would wake up drink be unconscious and so we sort of lost our mum and dad in sort of one fell blow because mum was just non-existent as a parent anymore couldn't cook the dinner just was not there and then when I reached the end of year 11 she said I'm gonna go because she I think she tried AA but because when you live in a rural town you know so many people and I think she was so she was my mum was so full of shame um, which is why it's really important for me I just talk about everything because I'm like don't be like shame is so isolating Um, and so she didn't feel like she could you know, expose herself in that way to people who she might meet in the street who would know that her secret shame that she was um, an alcoholic. So she decided she wanted to move to Brisbane. Her parents were down there and she could then just live with them and not have to pay money because she was on the sole parents' pension. So she didn't have any money to kind of buy a place or whatever. And I just went, oh, my God, if I go down to Brisbane with you, I'm going to have to be looking after you. I was like her emotional support person so I'd be like emotionally supporting you having to navigate a new school I really you know my parents um, my dad 
um, left school in year 10 and my mum only went to year nine and I was a good student and I really wanted to go to university. I didn't quite know what that meant, but I, I knew that I wanted to go to university because that felt like a pathway that it was really different to my parents' life. And I just said, well, I'm not going to go with you. Um, so I'm going to stay here and do year 12 and you can go to Brisbane and I'll see you on the flip side. And you didn't tell the school, right? No, well, no, because I thought if I took, because I was only 16 and I thought if I told the school, then they're going to try and get some adult to tell me what to do or foster care. I wasn't doing, I'm like, no way. By that stage, the idea that adults knew what they were doing, that was completely out of the window. I'm like, you are an idiot. You are an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. I'm more responsible than you. No, you know, I'm like, don't even come close to me and try and tell me what to do. So I just spent the year forging mum's signature on notes and I had I could get Ostudy. I qualified for Ostudy then. So I had Ostudy. I was living with my sister and so we just split the bills and I worked part-time in a shoe shop and we just sort of scrounged around. I ate a lot of toast, didn't sort of amp up to kind of cooking meals for myself. There's a lot of toast, a lot of, you know, apple and yogurt. And then I would often buy like a salad roll at Tuck Shop because that was like nutrients. Um I made it through, didn't get scurvy, so, you know, it was all right. Absolutely. You more than made it through. And, um, and so we'll get to the topic of TED Talks. I mean, when people hear that background, I know people would have been listening to that eight minutes and, you know, same as when I first read the book, it just smashes you in the chest. It's like, oh, my God, this poor girl, you know. And, and, and yet, you know, when you – the TED Talk that's had over 100,000 views isn't – that story particularly mm. it's 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 a story set when you're 26 and and you're relatively free of the of the day-to-day nightmare of this is it true that i mean i understand you, you did have a go at your first ted talk was to have a crack at, at this story is that mm. is that right yeah surprisingly enough tony um the story of being beaten up as a child and having a traumatized veteran father people find it a little bit hard going um yeah. i kind of you know I guess because I've lived, I've gone, my God, I've had so much therapy and I've told this story so many different ways over the years that, and I'm relatively up for like full-on conversations. I kind of forget that it's actually really, a lot of people get really confronted by that story. So, And you tell it a lot, like you work for Speaking Out and you go out to, you go out to kids and you've been out to universities and you've spoken to veterans groups. And yeah. So this is a story that you've told lots of times, but are you saying that there's a format for that? Where people have to be have their fists gripped and ready to go, as opposed to a TED talk, for example. Yeah, it's like um, I keep looking for the way to. T- I want people to hear it, and I want people to be able to hear it, and for it not to just feel like a. You know, you've got to have. You can't just hand over unprocessed trauma and go. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? That's not the goal. The goal is to go here. Come with, if you haven't imagined this, sit with me. Let's get inside my skin for a minute because this is happening to one in four children in Australia. They're growing up in home with family violence. That's the statistic, one in four. And how many times do we talk about it? Very, very few. And it's just one of those things that I think it, if there's so much expectation in so many ways on children to be coming forward and naming their experience, but if it's the thing you've been told is a secret and you're not meant to share and you've never heard a person 
share that story, you're like, well, no one talks about it. Everyone gets completely uncomfortable. Like I had to do a um, grand round, I don't know if you know, that at, at hospitals they do these things where often like if there's a breakthrough in a drug treatment or this, the person will come and give a, a talk on that and the doctors will all gather, all the very important doctors gather their grand rounds there. And I got asked to do a talk um, from the domestic violence team Basically, and basically the, the gist of my talk was, I know you know, might not be a social worker, but if, if you're in a room with a child, you know, because it's also acquired brain injury for children, you know, I got beaten in the head quite a few times as a child. It's actually, it, you're in a really vulnerable position in terms of brain injury. Um, so the hospital system, domestic violence is a, that's a health issue. It's actually like, you know, a, a physical health issue because they're having to deal with people's injuries and stuff as mm. well. And I know coercive control, there's a lot of different nuance to domestic violence. But basically what I was saying is I know you're really uncomfortable and it might not be your area of expertise, but you as the adult have to say, hey, did your dad ever hit you? Because this, the narrative is always, oh, the man is hitting the woman, the children may witness that. No one's sort of exploring the child experience. Yeah. And it is proven that if you have, a, you know, intimate partner violence, it's very often you also have um, children who are being physically hit. So, and they're not even sort of mentioned in the story. And it really annoys me. It's like you're not giving children their voice and you're not giving, you know, one in every fortnight a child is killed by their parent. Like mm. every fortnight. We know that now that at least one woman a week is killed by a partner, like that's a statistic mostly we have. No one's talking about the child of Fortnite who's killed by a parent. Like that's killed that's by right. a parent, you know. That's amazing, isn't it? I, I had no idea of that. And so the, the first time you had a go and you say it, it doesn't really crack through because it, it is tough going perhaps and it doesn't have 100,000 downloads. But Oh, I, I that think- was a really crappily filmed as well. In, the, in terms of the actual experience of talking, that talk was like – what you dream of as a, you know, I was an actor before I was a, a speaker and a writer. And it's like the audience was just like, oh my God. One of the stories I've brought along here with me today is the one that says, I'm not good enough to be here. It says, who do you think you are? You haven't got your life together. You still cry and get overwhelmed. Who are you to talk to anyone about anything? But I've heard this story before. I know it's trying to protect me because it thinks if I stay small, then no one can ever hurt me again. But to the story, I say, I know you're trying to help me, but I don't want shame to win. So I'm going to speak. It's when we embrace these beasts, we've been fighting our whole lives. We come to realize we are bigger than them. We are the multitude of our stories, not just one. So the next time a voice in your head says, give up, stay small, don't speak out, don't pretend it isn't there, but whatever you do, don't listen to it. You can't change what's happened in your life, but your past does not have to define your future. Find a place your stories all your stories own them so they don't own you thank you 
and at the end it was like the cheer and everything. It was yeah. just really badly recorded. And it's also, it's not something when you're scrolling through YouTube, you're necessarily going to go, oh, yeah, hit me up with a bit of uh, war trauma and domestic violence. I'll, I'll go that. You know, it's, you anyway. So if we get to the kind of constructing a TED Talk part of, of this chat, mm. so when you decide to have another go at it, mm. um, can you go through the thinking process that goes into now. What am I going to do? What I'm, I'm going to write another TED talk. What should I do? I've kind of done the 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 core trauma that is the the stuff of enemy my yep. memoir. What am I going to do now? What was your thinking? My thinking for that one was that I had this story that I just thought was really funny. Like it had happened to me, and I just I, during the process of trying on a boot, I, I hurt my back. It's my story of, you know, going through, oh, my God, I've herniated the disc and then I'm, you know, walking through the streets trying to, like, save money by not getting – I don't know what I was thinking. But I'm like, I'm save money, not getting a cab. I'm going to walk a couple of blocks with a herniated disc to Grand Central Station and then I get to Grand Central Station and then a light show appears above and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen the light show. And I'm kind of – so I'm, I'm like – anyway, I wasn't really thinking very clearly – and then I end up in a total, like my body almost went into total lock. And so the only thing I could do was shimmy <laughs> across ground. And I was shimmying and then someone, because. And by was, shimmy, it's very well acted in the TED Talk. It's kind of like feet sort of are the only thing that can slide the, slightly sideways. Yeah, <laughs> Everything was, else is stationary. And at this stage, I'm not even going, oh, maybe I should get a cab now. I'm like, I'll just get down the stairs, get on the train. I'm like, anyway. And then somebody came over and said, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm not Okay. And then, then the funniest part, that wasn't, you know, particularly funny, but then the police, it was so American, it was insane. Like the police came, they cordoned off this area and they, so the police were there, they called the fire brigade and the ambulance and their 24-year-old female with a back problem. I'm going, oh my God, stop calling me because they're making me laugh. I just felt like I was in some crazy movie. It just felt so over the top. I'd also, you know, for me, I'd done processing work on what, that herniated, it represented something. It was symbolic of a, of a bigger, you know, not being in alignment with myself. And so I had a bigger themes that I'd explored in therapy that I thought, you know, and that for me is the, the key to either memoir writing or TED Talks is that your idea is that, you know, you're creating an argument for which you happen to be a lived example. Like I think you have to have some kind of own personal story of what it is you're trying to share. Um, so... For me, that was like me constantly hiding myself. And I mentioned, you know, I haven't grown up in a home where you have to hide a lot, but just feeling like I was a rubbish human being and if anyone knew who I was, then they would hate me. Um, and it was like this constant, I was doing all of this stuff for my boyfriend and trying to support his career and, you know, not, not listening to my own self. And so it was all about then the taking of a risk of going, okay, you know, it gets really tiring to just be hiding all the time and then having little arguments in your head about what you should have said to somebody but you didn't actually say the thing you really thought or, you know, I got really bored of it. So, so you knew you knew the general point you wanted to make the, about the idea of that this – well, you've got a very funny story to tell with good physical acting in it and it's New York and it's Grand Central Station and then you can drag it into the stuff you've worked through in therapy. Mm. But the kicker is actually the domestic violence, I think. That's the thing that brings this – thing home that that you don't even say it until it must be the eight or nine minute mark of the talk or did you, did you drop a hint in the first four minutes and then come back at nine or ten and say 
I, w- I wasn't so timey. I, I don't know, really. But um, yes, no, it's I've good that you've. It. I know. It's, I'm, going, oh, I'm going at four minutes. I'll put in a uh, reference. Oh, yes, I'll definitely 8.6 minutes. No. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm working with my notes here. No, it's yeah. good. That's good. I like how prepared you are. It's very professional. Yeah. So, so then where do you go from? You've written. So, is there a thing in TED Talks where. Where you start with the spine, like you do it, you, you drag it to a universal. You're almost a relatable, chatty professor out the front of a, a of a college classroom, saying, "This is our spine," you know. And that's that's sort of how you decided to enter this. Is that a TED Talky sort of thing to do? I think you meant to, as much as possible, build a rapport with the audience somewhat quickly. Um, you know, it's like any speaking. You're you need to have some sort of way that you're trying to kind of engage them instantly into making you a likable person, I guess. So, you know, all, it doesn't matter. The first one, which was far more dramatic, I had like a, you know, I used to be the kids that sat at the front of the class and I had my hand in the air and, you know, I'm telling a sort of depreciating story about what a nerd I was. And then, you know, the third one, it's like, oh, you know, I was meant to be doing this on a stage, but actually I'm doing this in my house, you know, COVID sucks type of vibes. Um not brilliant work, but you know, but, a yeah, little bit of rapport chatty. building, bit of chatty rapport building, and they call them icebreakers <laughs> for the MC, us MCs. You know, if you've sat on chewing gum on the way to the gig, tell people about the chewing gum on the back of your pants because hey, because they may see it anyway. Yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, it explain the chewing gum, and secondly, it's like, hey, I got the train here and I sat in chewing gum. You know, I'm, and I'm, I don't say this every time I stand up. This is a special thing just for you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think there's a little bit of that. Then you know, I think TED talks work best if you have scripted and memorized. But that's because I'm a actor as well. I like the. I like to know that I have really rammed that thing in my head because you get the nerves is a huge part. TED Talks are not like other speaking gigs. I always have notes for other speaking gigs. You know, you can fall back to going, where the hell am I? You're basically up there going, if there's crickets in my brain, then there's crickets on the stage. I better yeah. have a thing I can say to you right now. Yeah. You know, it's like you've got to just go over and over and over and over and over and over and over it. Well, how long would you have taken with your, your script? How long is a 14? Is it 14 minutes? Is that the limit? Or 15 or something? What's, what's the yeah, I think Yeah, uh, I think around 12, like around the 12-ish and under. Like I think the TED ones, the ones that are the official TED events, not TEDx events, yeah. which can be very variable. It's, I think you can have 20 minutes kind of vibe for the TED stage, but I think it's 15 and under and 12. Like they said, less is more. And that's one of the biggest issues is actually constraining yourself. You know, you might know a lot about a topic, but if you try and tell everyone everything you know about a topic, it's going to become a confusing jumble of people going, you have overwhelmed me with information. Yeah. So it's better to try and explain a thing really well and give it some space for people to take it in, then try and tell everything all at once. And I guess you're talking in this with the spine becomes the metaphor for the story. Yeah. So you've got the 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 hard part of the spine and the soft, gooey inner core, inner core of the yes, spine. And that yes, becomes yes. the the shell you've built for yourself and the and the inner core you're protecting. Yeah. Um, and you load up that metaphor and give us a nice whack of it in the first 30 seconds really which yeah. is um and it returns nicely throughout you know and that, that that sort of thing what do they call it do they have a word in ted land for what you're developing 
with that sort of thing? Um, I don't know. I don't live in Tedland. I visit Tedland, so knowing all of their. Uh... Well, I've just read the Ted book, and they call it a through line. A through line. <laughs> so in Tedland, they call it a through line. I'll help you out. Excellent. I ask these Dorothy Dixes, and then you don't answer them. Oh, sorry. I, I like. I, I didn't realise I was being tested no, you on, on Tedland. Uh, Tedland testing. So you've got your through line, which is going to be so. But your, I guess your thing is, well, I'm going to tell a story about not being your authentic self. Mm. Uh, but, but, and then I've got to sort of try and – you can't really medically link it to your back, can you? Or do you think you can? Well, if you actually look at um, some of the – you know, for instance, adverse childhood experience studies, you know, if you've had a certain number of uh, – four or more adverse childhood experiences, um, which is all about just dealing with the stress and the assault of – you know, being in, in a constant fight or flight state, you have a 20-year less life expectancy just through the sheer physical toll of that on your body. And, you know, in The Body Keeps the Score, which is a Bessel van der Kolk thing on, on trauma, he looks at there's so many ways that it changes and shapes your physiology and, and neurology. So possibly the lack of alignment back thing, I, I haven't actually done the research to know if there's – more and more evidence of that but it is always felt a hundred percent that was you know i read you can heal your life by louise hay that was my first self-help book when i was 18 Um, and she had this whole thing on metaphysical creation of disease and i just was constantly at that time i had done no looking at the trauma and i but i felt it living inside of my body like i had like a throbbing stomach of stress and this and a constant pain in my left you know and a lot of the work that i did in therapy was about going to where you're holding things in your body and just kind of sitting with that experience and wondering if your body's got something to tell you and just holding to, you know, because you kind of, I feel like the way it works is you block stuff off and then you don't go to that part of you and then that part of you starts to go, oh, my God, you need to attend to me. But I have no scientific evidence on that. But you just gave us more than you put in the talk. But I presume when you're writing a 12 to 14-minute talk, you just can't put everything in the talk, right? And also you didn't want this this story that has a, a very comfortable and easy pace and very digestible element to it. You don't want that to turn into the the Harvard School of Medicine, right? That's right. And, you know, too many citations, it becomes like, I'm, you know, and, and I get it, you know, I just went back to uni and, and had to do that stupid academic writing, which just drives me crazy. It's like, this so interferes with the story, my God. <laughs> just assume I've done the research, all right? It did, I did it, you know? Because yeah. it really, but to include all of that stuff, it's just you keep breaking people out of the story. Um, and I also love the show Don't Tell. So I want people to kind of be a little bit ahead of me or kind of going, I'm describing what's happening. And then, you know, some people... In, in comments with like, oh, yes, out of alignment. You know, like they're making the comments. I want people to kind of bring – I love that they add that plus that and they've made their own conclusion about it. I like to give them room for that because, you know, I, I have some knowledge but they also, you know, bring themselves to it, I think. And, and one of the chapters in in the TED Talk book talked about revelation, the sense that you, you reach a point and you hopefully either take – you take – audiences on an unexpected journey or you explain your own unexpected journey and and i guess the end of your talk is about where what whatever you learnt out of this um, back pain and what you were hiding within yourself and whether you're being your authentic stuff then then it has to be i will now be my authentic self and can you can you tell us about 
writing that bit, finding the right example? Yeah. So um, that was, you know, part of what you want to do is I, I always I watch TED Talks because I want to learn something. I want I want an immediate thing that I can apply to my life. Like that's why I think that's you want some tangible takeaway. And so that was the point of like, here's the story. Here's here's where I got to. And hopefully you're having people identify with, oh yeah, I I also give away to my boyfriend. Oh yes, I didn't do the thing that I wanted to do. I've you know and I so, also did my back in I also Station. did my back in in Central Station and had to <laughs> yeah. be chairlift. Yeah. Um and but then it was like, okay, I got to a point of realizing that I was hiding and you know second guessing myself just trying to guess what people wanted me to say and trying to do that all the time and I reached a point of going well that wasn't working anyway because half the time even though I was trying to say what they wanted and not saying what I thought they'd hate me anyway I was going oh my god people are going to hate me no matter what and I just reached this point of now I'm going to experiment all right I'm going to I picked a person who I was like if you don't like me, I don't care if you never, you know, because I, I assumed there was going to be some dramatic like, oh, now you've said the thing you really think, here's a glass, smash, stab. You know, I thought there would be some massive response to me. And I I said the thing that I really thought that felt like a really kind of dangerous thing to say or just like a really real thing that I'm like, I really think this. They were saying something that previously I was aware of what I thought that I should say and then what I actually thought. So, you know, we do the behind the scenes of the speech here. So, without giving away identities and this sort of stuff, is this a is this a thing where you knew you would have to confront it down the track and you talked about it in therapy and this sort of stuff? Or is this the sort of thing where you're just at a party and you go, fuck it, no, I'm no, going. This no, no. This, this I'm ready. A, I'm, I've been coiled and now I'm ready to go. It was a go. thing like I had multiple therapy sessions leading up to it going, so how do you do it? And I'm like, how, when I get that, like, you know, because – Having grown up with dad, it was like you had to have an answer straight away. You never got to, you know, you you were just always, I didn't realise I could kind of go, oh, just excuse me, I'm going to the bathroom. So, it, like, I had to go like, oh, I'm allowed to pretend I'm going to the toilet. I didn't know that was a thing I could, you know. So, I sort of had this whole strategy. And then, you know, she said, you need to, like, all therapy works through action. You know, like, if you're not trying something different, then there's no point in knowing the information if you just continue doing what you're doing, you know? So it was kind of like, you've got to, and so I'm like, I like to be a good, you know, therapy person. So I'm like, all right, well, we, we'd set myself one time this week, I was going to do it. And so I was in this situation with this person and I'm going, yeah, you seem pretty low risk. I couldn't care less if you like me or speak to me again. <laughs> so can you say where you were? I was out at a bar after, this had been a guy who hit on me a couple of times and whatever. Anyway, so I'm like, you know, and I didn't. I wasn't interested in him at all. It was hospitality days. Bit pissed, but I'm like, okay. And I'd gone to the bathroom, and I'm like, he was talking about stuff that was getting me really pissed off. And he was just sort of saying stuff. I can't. I can't even actually remember the specifics of what it was I said. But it was basically like, normally I would kind of like, oh, not along to him being a total blowhard and saying stupid crap. And I just went this. And he, I, I thought, oh my god, he's going to turn around and go, you bitch, how dare you? And he just. I don't think he even listened to what I said. I'm going, oh, right, nobody actually is paying attention. Oh, great. So that just felt like it unlocked like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing that because people are generally not even listening to you. They're so wrapped up in their own little heads. Say whatever you like. And it was just so – because I would otherwise spend a week going, I should have said that, what idiot. I would just be arguing in my head. What It was what such a waste of time. Well, my my – teenage daughter who's 15 gave my 50th birthday t speech to the extended family 
And that was the thing that she says, I say over and over, she put it in the speech, which is that nobody cares about you. They're all too busy caring about themselves. That's just basically a rule for life. (laughs) It is absolutely a rule for life. Don't worry. Everyone's too busy worrying about what you're thinking of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a, it's certainly a, a, a great pickup in this speech. And, and you can see the way it's resonated because the comments are full of people that feel great about this speech. Like you really, you've really warmed them, I think. Yeah, it re- and it really, I was really quite surprised. You know, it sort of came out of nowhere, really. It sort of, I hadn't looked at it. And, you know, you just do it and it disappears. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's had a really piss-ass number of views. Good on you, Ruth. Another successful <laughs> thing you've launched into the world that nobody's purchased or looked at. Great. <laughs> you know, that's how I'd relegated it to that category. Um, and then it was during lockdown. I think Matt looked at it. He sometimes goes and, you know. Your husband. My husband. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You know who he is. So, yeah. <laughs> let's assume everyone knows Matt. And he said, oh, did you know it had, you know, it had 50,000 views? I'm like. Oh my God, that's a lot of eyes. That's yeah. a lot of, you know, and my son who's really into YouTube and, you know, has, you know, he, you know how they love the YouTubers, the young children. Yeah. And he's like, in, in his mind, there is no celebrity better than a YouTube celebrity. <laughs> so he was really impressed. He's going, yeah, it's not just views. Look at the likes. And even, my, even Scarlett, who's a teenager, she was like, you know, it's actually rare to get that many likes because the like means they've actually bothered I'm like, oh, yeah, so much effort involved in clicking. I get it. Um, but, and, but then he said, um, you know that you know that there are, you know, however many it is, three, you, there are 3,600 people who like you in the world. I'm going, oh, wouldn't that be nice if that was true? But, you know, it's like that's – anyway, it's well, very nice. Well, it, it is a fantastic watch and I, I recommend people do have a look at it. And if you're interested in, in, in I guess, the grittier – story the one that really does inform enemy and you know which you shared with us at the top of this interview it's really it's tough stuff to listen to but you've put it in a, a speech on speakola that was for the child protection day keynote and that's from a few years ago 2016 do you remember that one yeah yeah that was my first talk after enemy came out and that was me going that you know it was they said oh can you do a keynote speech i'm like yes, I can do a keynote speech. And then I immediately hopped into Google, how do you do a keynote speech? You know, so that was my first kind of like, yes, of course I can do keynote speeches. Yes, of course. Um, And so that was the first one. That was a really great day actually because, you know, it was all social workers, but it's just reminding people about – because they were – again, it was a situation where they were trying to represent the child voice and there's not many many people who – uh, talking from a child perspective of what it's like to be on the receiving end of abuse, physical abuse, as well as, you know, so it's, there is, there's different nuances to that and having a chance to kind of just remind, humanise, you know, because you have to become hardened. You have to become hardened to the experience when you are going time and time again. Your job is to just see tragic incident after tragic incident. And so it was just to kind of that, you know, because I always, whenever I'm doing a, a talk, it's like, well, what do you want people to walk – you know, why me and what do you want people to walk away with? Um, so they've always got a theme for their event and um, so I always just go, well, you know, if I can help you tell that story in a way that's more human, if I can put a human face to it because feelings are the thing that drive change and so that's why, you know, being able to tell stories that make people feel something means that them actually acting on policies or whatever it is, 
that's actually going to mean something to them that they're like, I want to do better in this or I want to make that change. I want to be participate in, in making that different for somebody. And, and have, have you had a chat afterwards where you felt like oh, – this, that that speech has worked like you've had either someone come up to you on a personal level and say this is what i'm processing or or someone on a policy level say no we will do that all the time happens all the time like every, i mean after every talk and you know because i talk at a lot of high schools as well and i just love talking to teenagers like they are for me the best possible audience because if they are bored you, there's oh, yeah. a lot of chair squeak and moving around. It's happening. You know, you can basically I, track yourself through movement. Do you, do you, just as because I do school visits as well, do you call it out? There's certain year levels where I call it out, year nine and ten in particular, where if a head hits the desk, I go, come on. <laughs> you know, you got to stop. Come on, head off the desk, you know, or do you let it ride? You reckon you take them on, you, you lose them. Well, because I'm talking about stuff that's probably more – Emotionally, well, emotionally charged, I yeah. guess. And teenagers love authenticity, you know, above – they can tell when you are standing up there being vulnerable and telling a real story and they are hungry for that because they don't – they don't, you know, there's so much sugarcoating, oh, we're too sensitive, blah, blah, blah. So I – I can tell as soon as I'm talking too much about the technique, as soon as I'm telling my story, I don't get that. Even in audiences generally where um, they're like, this is a really difficult year, just prepare yourself. It's not you. Like, they, you know, the organizer, like, it's not you. I promise you. Whatever they do, it's not you. And then you get to have these great stories. It's like this kind of, oh, my God, this has happened to me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, yes. And I just t- say to the organizers, Whoever comes up to me, you make sure you do follow-up pastoral care with them. They all, like whoever's, and if you see people even standing in the background not coming up to me, that's even more important um, because they have something that they really want to share that they can't share in front of other people. Um, So that's, I just consider, I'm like, let's talk about this stuff and let's make it normal to talk about this stuff is my general vibe. Well, we both put ads out there for our speaking careers. I'm the head on the desk guy. (laughs) (laughs) And you're the <laughs> I don't lose them woman. But if you want to book either of us, go to uh, Speaking Out. Can I get you there? Where you else? Booked do you? out, Speaking Out. Booked out, Speaking Out. She's excellent. I've heard Ruth captivate many an audience. Look, thanks so much for chatting to me, Ruth. Is there going to be another TED talk in your future? Do you do you aim for number four? I don't aim. Like they've all Ted so, Land. I'm talking about Ted Land. <laughs> oh, no, will I revisit Ted Land? Um, Possibly. I just, you know, it's, it's, it is quite a lot of work. And, you know, how many things does one, how many times do I need to talk really? But all of those have sort of come by people asking rather than me sort of pitching a thing. And so maybe if there was a thing that I just felt like I'd made a new discovery that I thought was really, I really wanted to share in this particular way, I might, you know, pursue. So how, how long to memorize it for an actor like yourself? Once I've, I do a lot of walking. I do a lot of walking hills, memorizing, talking out loud. Um, so that's the way that I do memorizing. I can't do it just in my head. I've got to be hearing it as well as talking it. And I've also, I think one of the things that a lot of people who do talking overlook is you've got to keep imagining the audience there all the time, so that you can also be feeling a little bit anxious because you've got to, It's also about memorizing while feeling anxious. So. I, I can't remember the exact, but hours, hours, hours. And hours. So, would you give yourself a week or two weeks? Um, yeah, I reckon I, you'd want. I reckon two weeks if you can do it for you know, a couple of hours a day for two weeks. 
that's what for me to feel like I've fully embodied it that it's a hundred percent because you want to be able to not just memorize it but then muck around with it so you've got to get the words down but then you've got to feel loosey-goosey with it yeah, yeah. well there's a bit where I felt like you were really ad-libbing it but the I've got to let you comment as well on like you're at the nine if in the hundred meter race you're at the 99th meter and you've just got to do Ralph Ralph Waldo Emerson's quote oh yeah yeah, yeah. I'm like <laughs> what's that guy yeah you know, whatever. You gotta yeah. just roll with the Damn fact you, Ralph Waldo. I know, Emerson. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, total fail. That's just, no. you know, being vulnerable. That's okay. You don't have to be perfect, Tony. Just look at Brené. She'll tell you. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for chatting to me, Ruth. The book is Enemy. The TED Talk is The Pain of Hiding Your True Self. You should check them both out. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. I mentioned it earlier, but thank you to everyone who's become a paid subscriber via the Speakola newsletter. And there are six people who deserve special mention. They've become founding members. They've paid over the odds to try to keep this project going. And they are Carmel Flynn, Adam Collins, Georgie Costello, Andrew Hall, Dallas Johnson, and yes, please, at Mulberry's. I actually don't know your name. I've sent you an email. Yes, please. But thank you to all of you for your extra contribution to keeping this thing going. The standard contribution is $5 per month or $50 per year. News.speakola.com. And my other substack, if you're interested in my writing and, and my more personal blog posts, most recent one was about the death of my best man, Chris Daffy. I write about sport, I write about disability parenting, I write about general life here in Melbourne, snippets of audio of interviews I've done, other creative projects. Go to Good One Wilson, just search up Good One Wilson, and you can join up to that newsletter too. If you pay for one, you get the other for six months free. Just send me an email note asking for that. Speech of the week. Well, it is the speech that Ruth was talking about. A TED talk, a TEDx talk. It is Ruth Clare, The Pain of Hiding Your True Self. This speech was delivered at Lauriston Girls School at a TEDx youth event in 2019. It's well worth visiting on YouTube. Ruth's got an actor's panache when it comes to delivery. You would have heard that in the interview, and she's fantastic up on the stage. Ruth Clare, The Pain of Hiding Your True Self. Hello. Um, Before I uh, start telling you the story that I want to tell you today, uh, first I wanted to tell you a little story about the spine. It's exciting. Gather round. So the spine is made up of a series of bones uh, stacked on top of each other and in between those bones are discs. And the role of those discs is to absorb the shocks of everyday life. And those discs are made up of a tough outer ring and a soft inner core. So that's all I want you to know about the back for now. Um, But the important thing to remember is that tough outer ring and the soft inner core. So the story I want to tell today takes place in 1999. 
the world is gripped with fear of the millennium bug and we're sure that all of our computers are going to crash, which never happens. Um, at this, age, this time, I was 26 years old uh, and pursuing my dream of becoming an actor. I'd landed a couple of speaking roles on television and I still had hopes that it might come true. Um, when my boyfriend at the time, the boyfriend I'd been with for six years, said that he wanted to pursue his dream of becoming a fashion photographer, and to him that meant uh, going on a road trip across America and living in New York. Now, it had never been a dream of mine to go and live in New York, uh, but I wanted to be a supportive girlfriend, so I said that I would go. But as soon as I said yes, I had this feeling in my heart. It was a weight that felt a lot like sadness. Now, if I had have listened to that feeling, what it was asking was why I was giving up my dreams for somebody else's. But I was very good at not listening to my feelings. Uh, in the home I grew up in, I learned that you had to sacrifice who you were to be what other people needed you to be. I learned that feelings of any sort were a sort of weakness and certainly things like sooking or feeling sorry for yourself were not to be tolerated. So despite my misgivings, I packed up my bag and I went. But as soon as I landed in America, that weight in my heart grew heavier. And the more and more kilometers we logged, the heavier that feeling grew. I kept hoping my boyfriend at the time would notice me hiding behind the person saying, I'm having a great time, but he didn't. And so I shoved my feelings aside and we kept making our way and I decided that New York, New York was where we were gonna to get to and New York was gonna be the thing that made that feeling go away because what kind of loser doesn't like New York? Well, uh, me. Uh, so it turns out that I really didn't like New York and then that feeling in my heart grew to the size of a bowling ball and it was everything I could do just to keep my body upright fighting against this weight. And as many of us have probably done, I started looking around for little things to give me a shot of joy so I could keep faking my happiness. So I ate a lot of chocolate and I drank a truckload of wine. Um, and as others may have done in the past, I found myself in a shoe shop, um, looking at the perfect pair of boots that was going to make everything all better. But I've been cursed with high arches. And as I went to put on these boots in the shop, over these arches, I felt something in my back go twang. And I was flooded with the worst feeling I'd ever had in my life. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know that actually what had happened was that that tough outer ring had given way and that soft inner core had forced its way out and started pressing on a nerve, finally demanding to be seen. But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was I had to get out of that shoe shop. So I got the lady to help me take the shoe off because I couldn't sort of lean forward properly and I hobbled out of the shop and I found myself on the street. And I'm standing there thinking I didn't know what to do didn't occur to me to call an ambulance. Um, didn't even occur to me to hail a cab because I was thinking, I'll save myself some money so I can buy the boots. Um, so I'm gonna to walk to the subway, which is a couple of blocks away, and I'm gonna get a train home. 
So I start making my way to the subway, one foot in front of the other, because I'm a tough outer ring kind of person. Um, there's no soft inner core as far as I'm aware. Um, and I keep walking and eventually I make it into um, the foyer of Grand Central Station. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the foyer of Grand Central Station, but there's this huge dome ceiling. And I make, the, and I make my way in there and by this time I'm completely grey. Um, and I've got that feeling like I may pass out at any minute. I'm in a cold sweat. But as I arrive, this light show starts playing across the roof. And I'd been to Grand Central Station quite a few times by this point, and I'd never seen this particular light show, so I was like, oh, I'm a tourist, I'm in New York, I'm not going to not watch the light show. So I'm standing there, watching the light show, going, oh, this is really good, oh, I love this, oh no, I don't wonder if anyone else has seen this, and there's like chiming music, and as I'm standing there, I'm thinking, maybe it's not so bad. I think I've made it up, actually. Uh, you know, I'm standing there and it's, and it's, you know, the feeling in my back, maybe it's not so bad. And um, the light show ends and I realise I can't move at all. So I'm stuck in this position going, okay, right, I go to put my head down, can't do it. Go to step forward, can't do it. So I'm standing in the middle of this foyer at Grand Central Station going, I don't know what to do, don't know what to do. But I still think, I'll just get, I'll just make my way down to the subway. Um, so I start shimmying across like this, trying to get to the edge of where I can find a railing so I can hold onto the railing so I can support myself to get down the steps. Eventually, someone comes over to me and says, are you okay? And I go, I'm not okay, I'm not okay. And he says, okay. the and then the next thing that happens is I'm standing there and finally I'm holding onto a railing at least and a policeman turns up in front of me and he says, what seems to be the problem, ma'am? And I said, I hurt my back. And he gets out his walkie-talkie and says, we've got a 26-year-old female with a back problem. <laughs> I was even laughing because I'm so American. I was going, that's so American. And then it gets, it gets more American than that. The next thing I know, the fire brigade come and cordon off an entire section of Grand Central Station. And so there's streams of people walking past me like, who is that? Terrorist, terrorist. And I'm standing there kind of trying to smile, going, no, normal person with a back problem. It's a back problem. And so they cordon off that entire section and, and then eventually the ambulance arrives and they take me away and they put me on that stretcher. And just putting me on that stretcher, I pass out from the pain um, because that has you know, crushed that vertebrae even more. Um, but eventually, I get to hospital and they give me a lot of drugs um, and I realise that I can't go on pretending anymore. Um, and as soon as I get a bit better, my boyfriend is away on a shoot in Miami living his dream um, and I decide I'm going to come back to Australia. So I come back to Australia and for the first time in my life um, I live by myself uh, and that's, you know, no boyfriend, no siblings, no flatmates, just me alone in a house with my own thoughts. And what I came to realise was how much energy I put into second-guessing what everyone else wanted or thought or needed from me. And I spent so much of my life twisting myself into whatever shape they needed me to be. And I never spent any time wondering who I was or what I wanted. 
And I realised, actually, in the home that I grew up in, that was necessary to keep me out of trouble. I had to keep twisting myself into whatever shape my father needed me to be. And I realised that I had put in a lot of energy my whole life into trying to make sure that nobody ever saw the real me. Because if I wasn't the real me, it didn't hurt so much when my father hit me. And if I wasn't the real me, it didn't matter so much when my mum was drunk and couldn't cook dinner or look after me. There is a psychoanalyst called D.W. Winnicott who has explored this concept of the false self. And he said, it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. I had spent my entire life hiding, hoping that somebody would come along and see me. But when I lived alone, what I realised that no one was coming to find me and I had to be the one to go and find myself. The problem was I had no idea how. So I went into therapy. And what I discovered was that there is a lot of ways that we hide. And I was particularly good at all of them. Um, you have to have some skills. Uh, so one of the ways I hid was by living by myself, not answering any mail, not answering any text messages, not responding to phone calls, not responding to anything uh, from the outside world. So I physically hid myself away. Um, another way that I hid was by drinking a lot of wine and pretending like I was having a great time all the time. Sometimes I did have a great time, but it was really not real. Um, and, but I found the major way that I hid was by not letting anyone know how I really felt or what I really thought. And I came to see that I did that because I was absolutely terrified that if anyone saw the real me, that soft inner core me, that they would despise me. And I didn't know if I could bear it. But gradually, with the help of a therapist, I decided I was going to get brave. Not really brave, a little bit brave, um, because I decided I would do an experiment with somebody who, if they did despise me and I, they never spoke to me again, which was I thought was exactly what was going to happen, um, then I could live with that. Um, so this night, I decided it was going to be the night I was going to be my real self in front of somebody. Um, I wasn't going to make any grand statements. I just wasn't going to say the thing I thought they wanted to hear from me and I wasn't going to squash down my feelings. I was just going to be as much of my authentic self as possible. And I built up to this moment and when I said this truth, I was sure there was going to be some massive response. Like the minimum I thought would happen would be that they would throw a drink in my face, slap me and walk out and say, you're a terrible person. That was the minimum I expected. And do you know what happened when I actually said this truth? that I'd never been brave enough to say. Absolutely nothing. Because I don't think they were even really listening. And so that was actually a complete revelation. I was like, oh, no one's paying attention. No one even notices. Oh, good. So I started to take some more risks and be myself in front of more people. And what I found was that not everything I said was popular. Um, but when I'd been trying to second guess what everyone wanted me to say, not everything I'd said was popular then. And not everyone's going to like you regardless of what you say. And what I found was actually that when people did like me, I felt like they liked the real me instead of the person I was pretending to be. And as I grew more and more 
confident, I started, instead of asking, what will other people think of me if I say that? I started asking myself, what will I think of myself if I don't say that? And as the outer me grew more aligned with the inner me, so too that tough outer ring and that soft inner core grew more aligned and my back grew stronger. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, it is, now I've forgotten what he said. He did say something very exciting. It was, um, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest achievement. Don't wait for people to come and find you. Take your true self out of hiding and see how your world changes. Thank you. That's it for the episode. Thank you, Ruth Clare. If you're interested in her areas of expertise, trauma, childhood trauma, visit ruthclare.com. She's also on Instagram and Facebook and all the social medias. A final 2022 thank you to our music provider, David Bridie. What a talent he is. Thank you to Mike Fink, who helps me whenever I need help with logos and speakola visuals. And he's been very helpful in setting up news.speakola.com. Thank you to everyone who's signed up there, especially the paid subscribers. Thank you to the Patreons as well, patreon.com forward slash speakola. Thank you to the donors, speakola.com forward slash donate. It's been a fantastic year, lots of great episodes this year, and can't wait to be back in 2023 with more guests. I've got my feelers out. Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados. I'm trying for her. I'm trying for one of Nora Ephron's great friends who wrote a book about Nora Ephron to talk about that Wellesley speech. How good's that speech? I reckon I'm a pretty good chance for that interview early in the new year. So give the podcast a subscribe and make sure that every episode rolls in for you. All the best to everyone with their holiday season endeavours. I'll be back in the new year. Speak well at Christmas lunch. No slurring. Give those cracker jokes the panache of great delivery. All the best until next year. We'll be right back.